Hello and welcome to the podcast for Patriots. I'm your host, Jim Fralick. I ain't rich, but I damn sure wanna be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. And today I'm super excited to introduce to you listeners uh, Tosin Davis. He's a former Marine and he is a real estate investor. He's done a few different things, uh, Tosin has. He's in the Boston area. I know he's done regular rentals, and I know he's done some Airbnb, but I'll let him introduce those if he if he wants to. But uh, again, he's a um, been deployed overseas as a as a Marine. He's a he's a program manager uh, for the government. Uh, he's got a, a pretty deep background. Recently made the move uh, out to Colorado Springs. So uh, welcome, Tosin. Are you there? All right. Good evening, everybody. Uh, Jim, thanks for that intro. Much appreciated. Glad to be on your podcast. I've heard so much about it. I know you've been trying to get me on here for a while, um, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, to do this for for you and your listeners. Well, thanks, Bud. So, so given that uh, you moved before I get into you a little bit more, you just moved to Colorado Springs, so I know you're right in the middle of move. How how you settle in over there? I'm settling in pretty nicely. Um, just getting over some altitude sickness, uh, some adjustment, uh, <laughs> growing pains. But um, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And uh, before I went out here, I was working with a real estate agent who specializes in placing families that are um, PCSing or going to a new duty station. Uh, so we did a lot of virtual tours. Uh, probably sat in on uh, maybe ten or fifteen virtual tours. Um, to see which home would be a best fit for me. And uh, I went out here. Uh, there was one that I had found on Zillow. I said, hey, I want, I want to see this place as a virtual tour. Mm-hmm. Um, I got out here and, and saw it and knew right away this is the one. So uh, put in an offer on that, and we're looking to close next week on Wednesday. Wow, fabulous. Quick. No, uh, yep, no, grass growing. <laughs> no grass growing below your feet. I know how you are. I know you move fast and your uh, brain's always working fast. So sorry to hear about your illness, but, um, that's okay. It hasn't slowed me down too much. Good, good. Hopefully your body adjusts to that uh, mile high altitude out there, but you do not turn into a Broncos fan ever. <laughs> that's right. Pat all the way. Pat's nation. There you go. So uh, I know I said a little bit about your background, but I'd like to give you an opportunity now to, to uh, let us know a little bit about your military real estate background and then on to your current focus. Sure, sure thing. So uh, as Jim mentioned earlier, I'm a prior service Marine, um, former staff NCO. I did three tours, uh, a couple in Iraq and uh, one in Afghanistan. Um, I got into real estate investing uh, kind of by accident right when I returned from my last tour, um, I basically did a, a friendly sale and uh, I bought a home from, uh, from a friend. And I did the 0% down VA loan 
which was uh, a great benefit that, you know, I worked hard for while I was overseas. So it was time to invoke that. And um, I, I pretty quickly discovered that when you do a 0% down um, mortgage, your principal and interest are pretty high. And so, um, you know, I basically did a conversion on that house. It was a pretty decent sized house. I did a conversion so that half of it was uh, rentals to basically a studio slash bachelor pad. Um, and I had, in, I had inherited uh, three tenants from the previous owner. So I became an accidental landlord. <laughs> nice. Wow. Well, that is, uh, do you still own those today? Uh, no, actually, I, uh, I did a little bit of renovation on that one. Um, and I sold it at a pretty high profit in, uh, 2012. Um, and I, I took those profits and converted it into, uh, three condos. Um, and, uh, just kind of moved on from, uh, the, the live-in, uh, landlord model to kind of the, the remote landlord model. Okay. Copy. Interesting. So yeah, accidental. I hear hear a lot with guys about becoming an accidental landlord, not quite in the same way as you, but that is a, that is an interesting start. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's good. And then you made a uh, good sale on that in 2012. So, uh, so although, you know, Tosin, that I think real estate investing is the number one way to build and maintain wealth, as you and I've talked about a few times, I want to always give the listeners Right off the bat, an early warning signal in each podcast regarding something that new investors, because most people listening to my podcast are and will be new investors, but things that they should be aware of and or maybe a valuable lesson that you've learned over the years in your investing that you can pass on for others to learn. Yeah, absolutely. So as a, as a project manager, program manager, one of the things that we specialize in is lessons learned. So figuring out uh, what went wrong and uh, how to make it so that that never goes wrong again um, and having wild suggestions for the future and, and being able to take tactical risks. So um, just over the years, investing in, in real estate in Boston, um, I have plenty of lessons learned uh, because uh, real estate in Boston in particular is, is like, it's a quagmire. Um, if you can be successful, uh, if you can break even, or um, just survive in the city of Boston as a real estate investor, you can thrive anywhere else in the country, anywhere else in the world. Um, <laughs> so I have, I have a nice. ton of lessons learned. So um, I would say one is be very careful about who you rent out to. Um, and I like to stay away from termed leases. So instead of doing like a six month or 12 month lease where you're locking someone in, um, I like to do the 30-day tenant at wills. And keep in mind, this is for specifically the, for the city of Boston, but it applies all, the, all across the board for Massachusetts. I like to do the 30-day tenant at wills because, you know, people's lives change. Um, they, they have kids, they get divorced, they have domestic issues. Um, and so people need to be able to get out of their leases without having to invoke all kinds of legal action. Um, another issue you might have is you'll have some tenants that come in and it's pretty typical that uh, 
tenants from Boston are, you know, scum of the earth. So after a couple months, <laughs> you need to get rid of them. Okay. <laughs> and if they're locked into a 12 month lease, I mean, you, you got a huge problem on your hands. So, um, speaking as a, as a Boston guy too, you're saying that, huh? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's kind of like that show. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Like, you know, as a Bostonian, I recognize that we are among the worst human beings in the world. Oh, great. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nice to hear you. I'm sure there'll be some uh, Yankees fans and uh, <laughs> Dolphins fans that agree with you on that count. Right. So uh, that's great. So, so yeah, um, uh, no, that's so a great I, lesson. Another, Go ahead. So another lesson, I, I, I don't like to collect security deposits. Um, there are a whole slew of, uh, of laws, rules, regulations around um, maintaining security deposits and invoking them. There's way too much difficulty and weirdness around it and it's easy to get caught up in a trap if you violate any one of the many rules around this uh and your tenant knows the massachusetts laws they can basically take you to court and what's going to happen is you're going to have to pay uh what's called treble damages where you pay them three times what that security deposit was Mm -hmm. and you pay for their lawyer to sue your own ass so I just don't collect security deposits at all. It's never worth the uh, amount of money. Interesting. Okay, wow. Well, those are great early warnings to your fellow veterans and uh, active duty members who might be thinking about, especially in Massachusetts and Boston. Uh, but um, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, I guess. Kind of like the New York song. that as you're screening your tenant, um, you you invoke the uh, three times the rent gross income rule. So if the monthly rent is uh, $1,000 uh, on a bedroom, mm-hmm. if they're not making, if they're not grossing at least 3000 from a steady job, uh, it, it's not going to work out well for either one of you. Don't get caught up in the desperation. Um, I know a lot of real estate investors right now in Boston are pretty desperate because it's December and people have already uh, found places for where they need to live. I've got a few, uh, quite a few vacancies myself, but what you don't want to do is get scared and, and take a subpar um, potential candidate um, just so that you can fill that space. It's not going to work out for you in the long run. You'll actually end up uh, uh, spending more money trying to get rid of them or uh, repairing things. So, uh, you got to look at it this way. Three times the gross income because they're going to have to pay a quarter of that to Uncle Sam. Um, what's left over, they have to eat. They've got to be entertained. Um, they need their cell phones. So when you take a look at uh, somebody's life priorities, you know, they, they've got to pay their cell phone bill. They have to eat. They have to pay their landlord. Uh, if they can't do one of those things, guess which one is last on the priority list? You're not getting paid, and that money is coming out of your pocket. So okay. um, definitely make sure that uh, you don't even continue the conversation if they're not making at least three times as much as the monthly rent. That's a good, good early warning. Three, you, you're given like three. You're given half a dozen here. Good early warnings. I, I love it. I love it. So oh, got, I got, I got more if you want. <laughs> we'll come back. I'm sure we'll hit on a few, but uh, yeah, I've taken a few notes here on those. The three times the grossly monthly income. You don't like to take the security deposit. Uh, and just in general, you don't like the term 
term leases, you like to do 30 days tenant and will in Boston. And uh, all those reasons make sense for areas like, I imagine that'll apply to many, especially Northeastern cities with similar situations to Boston. So that is uh, really, really awesome information. So I'd like to pivot a little bit now, Tosin, if you don't mind. And I want to ask you a little bit about this is a little bit on the philosophical side, and I'm sure it'll lead to maybe what you're currently working on, but I, I want to know in, in terms of your investment outlook and where you think the best place to put uh, money is. Do you Are you an opportunity investor? Do you, do you believe geography is more important, asset class, or being in a niche? And, and so in terms of investing, which of those do you favor as a focus? Is it one, one or more of those, or all the above? So it's like I, I just wherever the opportunity is, or you know, location, location, and then within that asset class, or very specific niche. And if you settled on a niche or asset class, can you please tell us why? Sure, absolutely. It's all of those things. So the first thing that I do when I get on to Mass Realty or Trulia or Zillow. Um, and I'm looking at uh, places in my own price range, I look for areas that are in what I call pre-gentrification. And what that means is that the, the neighborhoods all around it have been gentrified and wealthy people have started to move in. What that does is it makes it so that uh, hardworking middle-class people and uh, poor people on public assistance, they get squeezed out because the, the prices in those areas have skyrocketed. You can't even afford to, uh, to look at the place. Um, so those people need to go somewhere and generally where they go is the next neighborhood over. So you have these hard working class people that, you know, they, they can afford your rates, um, but they can no longer afford the, the rates from the, uh, the upper class neighborhoods. So I like these, uh, pre gentrification areas. Um, specifically one of the areas that I focus on right now in Boston is the Hyde Park area. It's right next to, uh, Jamaica Plain, Roslindale, uh, Dorchester, um, all of the areas that um, you, you can't really afford to live there unless uh, you're willing to have like six or seven or eight roommates. So families are moving away from those areas into Hyde Park now. I like to look at areas that are um, they're near a lot of services like police stations, uh, community centers, daycares, uh, schools, public transportation. People love that shit. They, they want to be near services. Um, with, with respect to public transportation, mm-hmm. it, Bostonians are, are pretty lazy. So you want to be within a quarter mile to half a mile from the nearest, preferably commuter train station um, so that people don't have to pay for, for parking. Um, but if not, the nearest MBTA metro station. Um, and as a last resort, uh, very close to a stop that's on the bus line. Uh, what I find is that people want just one way to get to downtown. They don't want to have to take a bus to the train station and then take the train um, into Boston. Like I said, Bostonians are very lazy. They just want to do one thing. So if it's a bus that goes all the way in or a train or that goes all the way in and it's a quarter mile to half a mile away from the house, you are golden. You will never have a problem filling that space. Okay, great. Um and the last thing I like to do is uh, I like to to maximize my geometric efficiency. So as almost everybody who's been to Boston knows, 
um, it takes forever to get from anywhere to, to anywhere. And I've, I've actually tested this out and clocked it. And the general rule of thumb is for every mile that you need to go in Boston, it's going to take you 10 minutes. That's just the way it is. I can stand on the roof of one of my properties, look one mile down the road at the other property, and then uh, get in my car and start driving there. It'll take me 10 minutes. But if I run there, I can do I can do a six and a half minute mile. If I run there and I go slow, I can get there in about seven and a half to eight minutes, which is faster than I can get there if I drove. So what I like to do is I like to make sure that uh, geometrically, the property that I'm going to invest in is is either on the same line, like if you draw a straight line, one mile down the road, or it's it's within a one mile radius. So geometrically, I'm creating like an equilateral triangle or like a square. Um, and that way, when I have to take care of business on the weekends or I do my real estate weekends, where I go around, I collect rents, you know, I hear sob stories, uh, I fix toilets, I, you know, you run the gamut. Uh, everything is all within 10 minutes of each other instead of an hour, an hour and a half away from each other. That um, is interesting. Yeah, that is, uh, well, the listeners can definitely tell. I, one thing I should have said is that both Tosin and I uh, have military intelligence backgrounds, which some people know that's a, as an oxymoron, but uh, you could tell from listening to you, Tosin, you're very analytical with the geometric efficiencies calling out. I mean, we got to break out our calculators, start doing some math here. But uh, that is interesting, and it, it makes sense to me because I know a lot of real estate investors who are very experienced and say ones that have large multi-units, they talk in terms of um, management, like having a management core and where people I think get in trouble sometimes is like say people that have bought into single family homes in many different areas. Sometimes cities separate from each other or across large towns, they start having big management problems. Whereas people who cluster things, and in your case, geometrically efficient, then that helps with your management of the property as well. And and in this case, the tenants, because you're targeting people that can be efficient within their life. So there's sort of two efficiencies going on. Does that make sense? Am I hitting on what right. part of what you... As many, as many efficiencies um, as you can stack up as possible, your life is going to be a lot easier in the long run. Wow. So that's, that's interesting. Well, anything, anything else in terms of niche? I mean, I know you've done a few different, but, um, but you start, it seems like you start with, uh, the geography as you're starting. Yeah, I mean, that's that right. It? So I, I start with the geography. I, I look at, um, again, the, the services, is it safe? I take a look at a heat map of, uh, of the crime in the area. Um, you know, I, I look particularly for, for violent crimes like robberies and rapes and things like that. And, and if there aren't a lot of those, you know, there's, there's petty thefts, then that's not really a big deal. It's not a concern to me. I think it's a golden property. I also have a, an elaborate system of cameras, um, external cameras on each house that are linked up to like a nest or, or a ring camera system. And I have interlocking fields of view. So there's no black holes in a 360 degree perimeter around my property. I can see what's going on. Like I, I'm in Colorado right now. I can see what's going on at all of my properties back in Boston. That is awesome. 
Also, <laughs> I also know you're a technical gadget guy, so that makes sense to me. So that is uh, that is good. No, no uh, stone goes unturned, and no blind spots. I, I love it. I love it. So, uh, well, thanks for sharing that. Now, I wanted to ask you, uh, Tosin, if you if you can, if you don't mind, if you can walk us through any rough numbers on a recent deal you've had that maybe give listeners a type uh, an idea to the type of return on investment or ROIs that you look for in deals that you do? Sure. Absolutely. My deals are very uh, involved and elaborate. So uh, if Jim is doing his job on the monologue, he probably told you about uh, the cash on cash return philosophy. And that's when you um, are investing. Did you do do that, Jim? No, thanks for pointing that out. But I did do the one, I did do the 1% rule, but go ahead. Tell us what the cash on cash is. (laughs) All right. Tell us. Great. So cash on cash is when you um, you buy a property using a loan. So let's say I buy a $300,000 property and I invest 20% down. Um, I'm eventually going to get that money back when I sell the property. So for now, it's cash that, that has come out of my pocket and it's sitting in, in, um, in a reserve. The money that you get in as profit from your rentals is cash that's on top of the cash, the equity that you've uh, currently invested. This is different from, say, an ROI, a return on investment, where you pay someone to do a renovation. Um, you're never going to see that money again, but it allows you to now charge higher rents or um, go into a different model like Airbnb or VRBO or Homeway, um, where you're going to be making a return on that investment. You'll make that money back after a certain amount of years, you'll get back to zero. And then after that, it's a partial retirement plan. So I know a lot of real estate investors, they only like to do the cash on cash. There are other real estate investors that only will do flips, right? Where that's a return on investment. Um, I like to do a blended model where um, I put a 20% down uh, to, to basically get the property what I find is that uh, in the city of Boston, it's very difficult to make more than 10 to 12% uh, cash on cash returns. So to put this in perspective, if you had to put down $100,000 on a property, um, you're only going to get back $10,000 a year. Now, you can invest in a mutual fund and, and pretty much get that. And, and why go through all the pain of, uh, of all the things that are involved in real estate, right? So that's why I like to see a 20% return. I like to see $20,000 back year after year. But that's just on the, um, just on the regular uh, rental aspect of it. The reason I do a blended rate is because even for me, I would prefer higher than, than uh, 20% if possible. And so I do a lot of investing my own money. I buy a distressed property um, or a, a property that's, that's not as desired as others. And what I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll basically invest my own money, have um, a builder or a renovator come in, um, and now I'm able to rent that space out on Airbnb or VRBO for $1,000 a month. Um, and depending on which area of the house I do that renovation in, I can get back my return in about a five-year period or a two-year period, or a couple of months. So when I walk through a house with my real estate agent, 
um, it, it, it drives him and everybody who's with me crazy because I have a certain vision of how I want the house to end up. The first thing I do is walk through the basement. I'm very much unlike anybody that, that uh, goes to buy a house. I want to see the basement first because I know that if I put sixty to $80,000 down on that basement to renovate it, then I can rent it out for $2,000 a month and I'll make a return on my investment in three and a half years um, to, to four years. After that hard period of three and a half to four years is over, I have a partial retirement plan. I'm literally getting an additional $2,000 a month in um, somewhat passive income. So I do the okay. same for the attic. And with the attics in Boston, it's pretty easy to convert those into uh, a mother-in-law suite or, uh, or a master suite. If you can throw a deck or an emergency egress on it, now you can rent that entire space out to a, prof- a young professional couple and their dog. And you can rent that easily, easily uh, for twelve fifty a month. Usually you can get somewhere around 1500 a month. And that generally has a two-year payback period because it, it costs about $25,000. Um, so $25,000, you are making twelve fifty a month. You're getting that back in, in just under two years. Um, another thing I like to do is when I walk through the house for the first time, I like to see that it has uh, – most, most homes in, in Boston are very old. So I like to see that it has a, a living room and that it has a dining room. And what I do is I build a wall – in between the living room and the dining room. Um, and I convert the dining room into a living room and I convert the living room into a large master bedroom. And then I rent that master bedroom out on Airbnb or VRBO for about $900 a month. So the cost for me to actually build that wall and, uh, uh, make, make it squared away, build a closet, you know, turn that living room into a bedroom is probably around two or $3,000, but I'm making that back after three or four months. So wow. that has a three, three or four month payback period. And then after that, it's a partial retirement plan. Um, so that's the basic strategy for, um, for, you know, you take a look at the bones of the house. Uh, you take a look at um, where you need to invest and you just slam it in. And as far as the, the cash on cash returns, usually I'll, I'll have anchor tenants. So the, this is not the Airbnb model, the short-term stay. This is like an anchor tenant that's going to stay um, for uh, 90 days, half a year, a year. Um, sometimes they stay for two years. And they, you charge them just enough so that you can have them pay your uh, principal, your, your insurance, your taxes, your interest, um, and any other kind of uh, um, insurance fees that you have on the appliances inside of the house. Okay. So help me understand. There's so much in there to unpack. I know. I'm there's not, so much. I'm not, I'm not but, even possibly going to do it because the listeners can, uh, you know, I'll be rewinding that and listen to that and taking some notes, Tosin, but it's very fascinating the way you, the way you approach that. But help me understand a couple things here. So the anchor tenant, is that you're anchoring somebody inside of the same place where you Airbnb another part of it, or is that separate? Exactly. So what I like to do is uh, on the second floor, I like to have my anchor tenant. Okay. In the same that way house. They're, they're sep- in the same house. That way they're separated from the Airbnb folks on the first floor. Right. So they come in, they walk upstairs, 
they've got their own space. They have their own bathroom. They're not sharing a bathroom with the Airbnb folks, right? Um, preferably, you're able to slam in a small kitchen of some sort on that second floor so that they don't even have to go down to the first floor and interact with the, uh, with the first floor guests. The people that you have on the first floor are transient. They're coming in for three, four, five days at a time, maybe a couple weeks at a time. Um, the reason I like that model of the Airbnb is because I get my money within 24 hours, right? So somebody rents to me on VRBO or Airbnb, I'm guaranteed to get my money. I don't have to chase anybody down. I don't have to hear a sob story about somebody's mother in the hospital. Uh, somebody's mom has died three or four times uh, and I have to eat their rent. Okay. You wouldn't believe the stories I get. <laughs> you turn into a heartless. You're like you're like Ebenezer. You know, I'm going to take you. I'm going to fly out there to Colorado and take you to this year's Christmas Carol to get that <laughs> you get that heart back that uh, these tenants have taken out of you over the years, uh, Ebenezer. But that's uh, that's interesting. You really Tosin, There's a couple things here. One, uh, you know, like I'm on Bigger Pockets and talk to a lot of investors and studied a lot over the last few years. And 10 to 12% cash on cash is pretty good for most investors. But for you, it's like, shoo, shoo, that's just the start. Like you got, you're aiming high here and you have a model that really works for you that I really like and want to look at more closely because the, just, just a few things here. So you're using the anchor and you're taking care of the bread and butter of it. That's your safety net trying to use the anchor and then you're taking each area of the house if I'm following you correctly and thinking about it in terms of almost like its own little acquisition and what you're going to put in it and then it's going to have its own cash on cash return so you have multiple cash on cash returns involved here some based off a short-term rental one based off a long-term rental but all in the same package and you're in in that you know, cumulatively you're trying to hit and apparently are, are hitting 20% in a lot of cases, cash on cash over time. Well, actually, well, actually if you were to take, if you were to take it and blend it, um, I'm probably getting 12 to maybe 15% on the traditional cash on cash return. Okay. But then using the model that I use of uh, the, the renovations and the, the short term rental, um, I probably get, I don't know, it's some ridiculous number, 50 to 60% return on investment from the short-term rentals, just because I'm able to charge, uh, you know, double the amount of money per night. Um, and I'm always guaranteed to get my money. Airbnb will always, they'll, they'll never give me a sob story. I always get paid, right? So if I had to, if I had to blend it out, I would say generally it's uh, somewhere between 43 to 50% cash on cash return. Okay. But that's amazing. It's amazing, but I, the listeners need to understand it's another job, right? In order to do this effectively, you've got to manage that project to for the renovation project in and of itself. Once the renovation project is done, you need to attack that short-term rental, that Airbnb management, like it's a job, right? So you're you're getting up, you're managing dozens and dozens of communications, you're doing intake. People are coming in from all over the country. There's a language barrier. You've got to clean up after them. Um, if there's some kind of weird issue, like you've got to deal with uh, with these little weird issues that creep up from time to time. Okay. Um, so it's, it's another job in and of itself. That is, and that is good. That could almost be its own early warning track right there for sure. So in, within that, 
um, have you calculated? So the expense that comes with that, that's all calculated into your 15 to 18% or whatever it is blended, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. That's so right. it's interesting. You're doing a lot of sweat equity here. We haven't even talked about forced depreciation, but that's an applied thing. It sounds like you're really looking at properties that cash flow, but because of the way you come to the equation, by default, you're getting some enforced depreciation because you're improving it. And by forced depreciation, for those who don't know, it's that you're you're basically going to a property, like Tosin said, that's distressed. And because of the improvements you're making in it, now you can, A, charge more rent, and B, it's actual, if you were coming and uh, have it appraised, the actual appraisal value goes up. So now the property's appreciated. And, and right. of course, Tosin... And Tosin yeah, go ahead. I think the, the typical metric is somewhere around 70%. So the philosophy is if you renovate a kitchen and that, that kitchen costs $10,000 to renovate, you've added $7,000 in appraisal on the value of the house. Now, I don't like to do the appreciation play like a lot of investors do um, because I feel like it uh, it's too slow for me to count on it. Um, the The other thing is, uh, you never know when we're going to have another global economic housing meltdown, right? So I just, and, and some of us still have that pain from uh, 2009 still in the back of our mind. So I don't, I don't like to, to use appreciation as, um, as an indicator of whether or not a, a property is a, a potentially good investment. Smart. I only smart. use that, that, yeah, the cash on cash. Awesome. And thanks for getting down the weeds with us a little toast. And I'm going to, I'm going to uh, move us along to the next thing I want to ask you about here. And that is uh, um, you have all this knowledge. And one of the main things here is to share it with other uh, veterans or active duty members. A lot of people that haven't invested in anything yet. And I want to see if you got any advice for new investors, especially active duty and military, uh, active duty military or veterans who either have little money or maybe poor credit but they want to pursue real estate investing anyway, what kind of advice might you have for someone in that position? Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, I want to give a shout out to, uh, to all, um, my, my brothers and sisters in uniform. Um, and thank you for, for doing everything that you do on a day to day basis. I remember, uh, when I was at, uh, in Marine combat training, um, and I was digging foxholes, they're teaching us how to dig foxholes. And, um, I'd been up for probably around 20 hours or so. And then um, I calculated out how much I was being paid to work 20 hours a day. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I decided that, um, that it's, it's pretty much slave labor. So anyway, um, my point is uh, we all realize that, that uh, military members don't make what they should, uh, what they deserve to make. Um, but with that being said, there is no excuse. Uh, for not being able to to get started in real estate, there are plenty of levers out there that you can pull um, where where you can get started, even if you uh, don't have a lot of capital or if you have no capital. So if I can go back in time, I would follow the script. In Massachusetts, you can go to a first time home buyers class. You pay about sixty bucks. Uh, you take the four hour class, and at the end of the class, they give you the certificate. What that certificate allows you to do is uh, buy a home, and, and often, quite oftentimes, you'll get first cracks at uh, at homes when they get posted to the MLS, the listing service, right? So you get first views, um, and and you get a foot in the door 
uh, when it comes time for the offering process. Now you you pay that uh, that three to five percent down. Let's say it's a four hundred thousand dollar home, and you had to pay five percent on it. Um, I don't have my calculator in front of me, but I think that's uh, it's pretty significantly cheap, cheaper than the eighty thousand that you would have to spend if you were putting down twenty percent. Okay. So so I wouldn't use the VA loan first. If you use the VA loan first, then you cannot use the first time home buyer benefit because you're no longer a first time home buyer, right? So use the first time home buyer three to five percent down first. And then with your next home, once you get that uh, that initial house squared away and you get that rented out, you use the leases from that first home as basis of income and you go to USAA or you go to any lending organization and you get a VA loan for 0% down and that's the house that, that you want to live in. Preferably a two-family where you can live in one part of the house and you can rent out the other half of the house. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, you hit a few few birds with one stone as usual. All, all your answers, Tosin, you're great. I'm so glad I got you out of the box here and on the line. Despite your headaches from the high altitude, you're giving me a lot of <laughs> golden nuggets here. So pretty much answers what you would do if you could go back and start again, right? You would follow that oh, path? Absolutely. absolutely. When, when I started, I, I started with the VA loan. And um, I basically freeze myself out of that uh, first-time homebuyer benefit. That's awesome. That is gold. So, Tosin, I take it you read a lot. You seem pretty analytical. So, have you ever uh, do you have do you have for the listeners a favorite uh, business or real estate book? I, I, I will put money down, Jim. That I am the only real estate investor that you ever interview that has never read Rich Dad Poor Dad. No way. <laughs> but with that being said, I do listen to a lot of podcasts. I do listen to, uh, I do watch a lot of YouTube videos. So um, when when I was first getting into real estate investing, Bigger Pockets podcast was uh, was huge for me. Um, so I would listen to hours and hours of that um, during the course of the week. I would do uh, demolitions on my own or, or, you know, uh, low level renovations on my own and just listening to bigger pockets and, and get inspiration from that. So, um, another podcast that has helped me tremendously is get paid for your pad. Um, get paid for your pad focuses on, uh, short term rentals like, uh, VRBO, Airbnb and home away and how to maximize, uh, not only the uh, efficiencies from managing it, but how to maximize your profits from it. Um, and then just YouTube in general. So um, there were a lot of uh, situations where I had to do um, some minor repairs or renovation or um, just get some ideas on how to do things in general. And um, instead of going out and buying books or, or paying for, you know, contractors to come in, I could just watch a few YouTube videos. And as long as it didn't look like I was going to cut my finger off, then it's something that I could try on my own. <laughs> Okay, excellent. No, those are all good. Bigger, bigger pockets podcast. So you're more of a you're more of a listener and a watcher than a reader. It sounds like. That's, yeah, uh, that's good. right. I, I I learn mostly by doing. Uh, you have any last thoughts or advice you might want to give that we didn't already cover? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say make sure that you treat this like it's a job, right? Not just a side hustle. 
So you're going to put your heart and soul into this. You're going to uh, bump into, uh, you know, some, some stumbling blocks, some roadblocks. Um, but you got to have a positive uh, mindset around it. What I like to do is I like to know what my outcome is going to be beforehand. And I like to have a five-year plan, right? Um, I like to uh, be very exact and very clear about how I'm going to achieve that objective between now and five years from now. And then I develop a very detailed action plan to implement all of those goals. And I don't always succeed in it. As, as a matter of fact, a lot of the times I fail. But what I try to do is I try to fail fast and I try to learn from those failures and then incorporate those lessons learned into the next iteration um, of trying to accomplish my goals. Uh, and as long as you can do that and keep a very positive uh, mindset around it, make sure that you have uh, people on your team, develop a team, get a team of folks together that and, and get loyalty over time. The, uh, the same guy that, uh, that sold my first house for me is the same guy that I go through every single time to buy new investment properties. Um, and he has come with him uh, an entire sub team of, of contractors, plumbers, um, you know, anything I need, basically, I reach out to him and he can give me somebody trustworthy to come in um, and, and do some work for me. So um, it, it's all about maximizing the positivity and getting rid of the negativity. Some of the closest people to you will tell you that idea is friggin' crazy. You shouldn't, you should not do that. You should do this conservative um, why don't you just take that money and, and put it into bonds or some kind of mutual fund? Nobody's going to understand your vision as well as you do. And, and oftentimes, unfortunately, it's the people that are closest to you that are going to try to talk you out of um, going towards your big, hairy, audacious goals. Don't let that happen. You got you to gotta cut that out, cut that out of your life and stay positive. Have a clear vision in mind and, and work towards that vision. I love it. I love it. Thanks, Tosin. You're so much here. You know, I would do a full recap, but there's no way. There's just too much to unpack in here. But there are a lot of, lot of nuggets, starting with, you know, that Boston people are the worst. And as a Bostonian, I thought that was funny. You gave us that. You give, you know, early warning signal, things like, uh, you know, no, uh, no term leases, no security deposits. Uh, from your perspective, you always make sure that your tenants make at least three times gross income than what the rent is. Uh, appreciate you went into the background of you know how you go about selecting the areas, pre-gentrification areas, uh, your whole geometric efficiencies model for a management perspective, as well as setting your tenants up. Uh, you know, attracting tenants who who want to be lazy Bostonians in that case. And now we'll find out in Colorado if, if they're quite as lazy in Denver or Colorado Springs, wherever you uh, continue to buy uh, your cash on cash model. Uh, phenomenal. 20% goals and how you break down each house, um, I think is a very unique model uh, with an anchor, an anchor long-term renter on one floor and then Airbnb and out chunks and viewing each as like its own cycle. And then basically all your tips uh, about, uh, you know, teamwork and, uh, you know, building a team around you and uh, staying positive, uh, your house hacking tip and your tip for veterans, 
uh, all, all great stuff. So I'll try to write up some show notes to go with this. And uh, of course, people can rewind and listen again and again. And just a, a ton of golden nuggets. Uh, Tosin, I appreciate you taking the time. And um, uh, really, it's, it's been awesome to talk to you. So do you, do you uh, have a way people can get in touch with you if they want to uh, pick your brain or partner up with you on deals in the future? Well, actually, uh, I'm probably the only person I know that's not on social media. I'm in the intelligence industry, so I, I, I stay off of uh, social media. But I do want to give um, a shout out to those uh, for my broker, for those interested in um, doing real estate in the city of Boston. Um, his name is Daryl Garvin. Um, Daryl with two R's and the last name is Garvin and he's helped me tremendously. Um, he, he always has time for you. Uh, you know, he, he always goes above and beyond, uh, whenever I was, uh, deployed or, um, away for training, I could be, I could reach out to him and I could be rest assured that, um, that he was working on my projects, um, making sure that everything was smooth back at home. Um, and he's a, he's a true mentor as well. Um, he's a, he's a great guy, to, uh, to be under his wing. So his name is Daryl Garvin and he's a real estate broker in the city of Boston. Okay. Excellent. I appreciate that. And the OPSEC tip as well. I like you and going on to social media <laughs> for my first time. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping some jihadists don't track me down and kill me after I start this, but <laughs> I'm stepping out on a ledge. So I totally appreciate that Tosin. So any listeners want to get in touch with Tosin, uh, you might have to go through me or Daryl Garvin to get to him or, or just go to Daryl Garvin and start your own journey. Uh, but I appreciate that, Tosin. And uh, thanks a lot. And thanks for your service, of course. And as always, a pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Same here, Jim. Thank you. Because the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. And I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land